Hi, friends. You are listening to the EntreEd Talk podcast, where we feature amazing educators and entrepreneurs showcasing how you can bring entrepreneurship into the classroom. We believe entrepreneurship is for everyone. I am your host, Toy Hirschman, and I am so glad you chose to join me on this journey. Let's go. Welcome, friends. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am so excited to have Stephanie Malia Krauss with me today. She is the author of an amazing book called Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World. I just finished reading this thing and you all need to check it out. So welcome, welcome, Stephanie. I'm so glad to have you today. Thanks, Toy. I'm super glad to be here. This is going to be fun. Awesome. So I'm going to let Stephanie go ahead and introduce herself because I think that works out better on the podcast. It's a lot more exciting for our audience. So take it away. Uh, Thanks, Toy. So for those of you who are listening in, I'm piping in from my basement in the Midwest where I never thought I would be launching a book from a basement, but I am. Um, And above my head in the life of the pandemic, I've got my two boys, they're eight and 10, and my husband, uh, he and I met in social work school. My background is social work and education. And um, we have been in the grind of pandemic life for the last year, learning a lot about living and learning about a lot about living as learning for our boys and for us. Um, I started out professionally in the classroom. I taught pre-K and fifth grade and then left the classroom for a time to go to social work school. I was really concerned with all of the things that were happening to my kids and their families outside of my room. And I realized I actually had no idea what to do about it or where to send them or how to help them. Um, So I still really identify as an educator. I feel like that's in my DNA. It's what I always wanted to do. It's who I always wanted to be. And I also identify as a social worker. Um, Out of social work school, I became a school leader. I was invited to start an education nonprofit that worked with young people who had been pushed or pulled out of school who hadn't been able to graduate on time. What we call those students has changed over the years. At the time, I would have told you I work with disconnected youth. These days, often folks will say opportunity youth, Um, but that was my background in school leadership. Other things that you should know about me that are really important to who I am and don't always show up on the bio Um, I am Native Hawaiian and Jewish and strongly um, proudly feel both of those in my bones and in the way that I live my life and raise my kids. Um, And let's see, what else should you know that's fun? I, not necessarily fun, but colorful, dropped out of school after the eighth grade. That was the last year I completed. I am um, as proud as I am to be Hawaiian and Jewish. I'm actually also equally proud to be a GED recipient. It's the one diploma hanging up in my office and um, a part of a long tradition for me of having to leave learning to really love it. Wow, that's really incredible. So it's the only the only degree you have hanging up in your office. It is. It is. I am um, 
I had wonderful experiences actually in, in post-secondary education. I have a degree from a small college. I started at community college and then um, a degree from a small college in South Florida and um, uh, a graduate degree in education from Arizona State and a graduate degree in social work from Washington University. And um, in Florida, had sort of the full college experience and that was wonderful. At Arizona State, I was a night student while I was teaching. And then at WashU, I was a scholarship student and got to leave work and be a full-time student as a grad you know, in grad school. Um, so I'm very um, grateful for those experiences, but that GED, man, that changed everything for me. Um, and so that's the one I really want to remember and see on a daily basis. I love that. That's so inspiring. Wow. So do you have this book that, that clearly your experiences have really contributed to the, where you ended up? Because it's, I mean, it's, kind of like, I, won't, I don't want to say that cliche, like full circle, but you've really been able to take what your, your background and, and lend it into this book in such a beautiful way. So I'd love for you to share um, what inspired your book, but then also this is just really cool and crazy and the sign of the times, I guess. But I, it seems like from reading it by, you're, you're well into the book or you're at the end of your book and then all of a sudden we're in a pandemic, right? That's <laughs> right, yep. So, and, and your book would have been unbelievable with or without pandemic, not that we wanted the pandemic, but the pandemic put a giant spotlight on what is in your book, which is really, mm -hmm. really cool. So can you share like what inspired you initially? And then, and then you were able to pull all those pieces in that really just broadened what you were able to talk about. So I think, um, you're right. Making it as one of the first books out that is able to give deep treatment to COVID and also the economic crisis that connected in the aftermath and the racial uprisings. Um, so sort of these three pandemic, the centuries old one, and then what felt new and really foreign for us. I worried when I started the book about being able to get educators and parents to fully embrace something that talked about so tightly the link between the quality of living and the quality of learning, or that brought up things, making it talked extensively about cash, social relationships, what happens based on what's going on at home and how that interacts with what happens in school. There have always been a group of educators who are super tuned into that and who are advocating for people to pay attention. But there are a number of others who are so busy trying to plow through the content and all of the requirements or parents really thinking about, you know, what sport do I need to sign my kid up for? Are they going to make it through fifth grade? Are their grades good? And then the pandemic. And suddenly everyone is feeling in a really emotional, visceral, real-time way, 
all of this connective tissue. We are experiencing ourselves as adults, what the connection is between mental health and how we can perform at work. Or if someone in the house lost a job or a family member, what the impacts rippled down and felt like. So there's the experience of what was it like to write a book and why did I start? And then what ended up happening with a book coming out in the middle of the pandemic. So I had started the book actually because I left local work. I left the front lines eight years ago. I was running a school that I mentioned um, that was for disconnected youth. So 17 to 21, they were, it was on the technical college campus. And we ended up closing that school. And the, the driving reason was it was a well-run school an organization financially, but programmatically the requirements of what it meant to be a public high school in the state of Missouri was really in conflict with what we knew the research said and young people said they actually needed to get ready for life. These were older older youth. They were young adults. Many were parents. They were working. Their circumstances were different than you think about for high school. Uh, And there were a number of things that they needed. So the mission of that work was to re-engage these young adults back into school, bring them back, and then equip them with the knowledge, skills, experiences, and supports that they would need for life after high school, for college and careers and adulthood. And we actually thought it was a missional conflict to keep going, Um, that there was, you know, it was not compatible to both be a Missouri public high school and to do our, our missional work. And so I left local work in pursuit of the answer that our mission was asking, which is what actually does it mean to be ready? And what does that require? Which is sometimes different than what does it mean to complete high school? And that is what I have been doing the past eight years. Well, in that time, that question has put me in rooms and conversations and partnerships and initiatives that as a classroom teacher and a social worker and a principal and, you know, someone leading this small local agency, I had no idea even existed. I was not tapped into these conversations. I knew nothing about the future of work, the future of learning. I did not know how much higher education was changing, the science, the brain science of how we learn or develop. And so over time, there was this sort of budding moral dilemma Uh, or ethical conflict of, I was privy to all of this information, but I couldn't actually do anything with it because I wasn't on the front lines anymore. And so making it is, I've sort of jokingly said, it's my love letter back to the front lines. I wanted to write it and you'll have to tell me if I succeeded toy. I wanted to write it in a way that was enjoyable, that felt like we're sitting down together for a day or for a set of coffees and that, um, You can just grab what you need to know and remember it about how the world is changing, how kids are changing, and what they actually need. And I wanted to make it short enough that people could get through it, that it wasn't, you know, a a big decision to make. So um, that's why I wrote it. I wanted to get this information that should be on the front lines, but often doesn't make it back into the front lines. So anybody raising and working with kids. And then the pandemic has been awful and hard and exhausting and complicated and full of grief and loss. 
And it has also put into the light just how linked living and learning are. And and folks are willing and wanting to explore that more. And so the timing of the book, I think, was right um, for when it came out. You know, I wish, given the circumstances, this wasn't the reason why it was right, <laughs> but but the timing was right. Yeah, it, it it truly was. And I love that your book gives these like the the illustrations and your when you bring like some of your story and I love the story about swimming in the pool and learning about this these kids in the country club and I'll let you tell that story if you want to but it's it's there's great illustrations that really bring those topics to your heart and then there's also these great action items at afterwards that say okay how how could I do this? How do I support a kid in, you know, for instance, um, one of the ones, and, th- and this I'd love for you to speak to as well. Um, how does, how do we support and keep kids learning during these times of like pandemic times of fin- financial struggle, times of scarcity, times of survival where everyone's just trying to get by. And now you're saying, you know, I still want you to keep learning buddy, you know, and, and this kid's worried about his next meal. Um, and one of the um, one of the, the the powerful messages you say in there is Maslow's over blooms, and I think all of our educators probably are familiar with both and <laughs> will get it. But if you would talk a little bit about that, being able to learn in these times and supporting students and teachers through that, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to understand what making it is as a book and then what it's not as a book and why. So I wanted to be super practical and say, we are actually in a time where we need to be working with our kids who were raising, educating, coaching, counseling, whatever our role is or our multiple roles in the world as it is even as we are designing or trying to co-design with them a better world. And this is a key theme through the book. And the reason why it's important for the example you brought up, which is how do you keep kids learning even as they struggle, is because we tend to do the ends, the extremes in education um, and really any field working with young people. We say, what does it look like to help young people survive? What are the basics that they need? And how do we provide the services to get them the basics? And then we jump all the way over to thriving, you know, and thinking about character and flourishing. And that's what every parent wants for their child. I don't want my kids to just make it. I want them to take the world by storm, change it, thrive, right? And that's true of anyone who loves a kid. But there is this murky middle where you have to survive and like strive to thrive at the same time. And that's where we've been the last year and a half. And so what I wanted to offer, the example you brought up is, is there actually science and research behind what you can do when kids struggle to keep them learning because life is hard and we will struggle and there will be hard times. And so uh, that part of the book examines this concept scarcity 
And you can have financial scarcity. You can also have emotional or cognitive scarcity, but it's you don't have enough of the resources you need. And so you're, you kind of, your body goes into survival mode. Think about it like hunger. You know, if I'm not getting the nutrients I need, my body adjusts in ways that have consequence in order to keep operating. Well, the same thing happens in the brain that happens in the body. And so I'll give you just a couple of like very specific examples and the book goes into more detail, but the the risky idea that I put out there is that we actually need to be prepared for kids to have periods of struggle and scarcity. And that most kids, no matter their income bracket, um, will experience cash scarcity. And that's because there's so much volatility in the world right now. So there are very specific issues that are poverty specific, but cash scarcity can happen anywhere, up and down the income um, sort of ladder. If a parent loses a job, if something financially unexpected, medical debt, um, all kinds of things, you know, uh, foreclosure. We can, we all know the types of things that can throw your family into a financial tizzy. The same thing can happen to us emotionally. If there's a mental health crisis, if something else takes place. So there are these really easy brain hacks that every teacher should know about, every counselor should know about, things like when a kid is operating in scarcity, the ability to, to hold the, a long list of to-dos shrinks because they're preserving their energy. And so give fewer deadlines. It doesn't mean that the work needs to be uh, less quality or that you say, take a complete break, just consolidate and give fewer, fewer things to remember. Uh, that's a really, I'm actually just going to focus on that one because I actually think like, it's so easy. It doesn't cost anything. And it has such a profound impact because if a, if a young person is experiencing a struggle at home and they're trying to remember all of the things they need to do to help out at home and all of the things they need to do emotionally not to cause more conflict or more crisis, I can't tell my mom this, I don't want to bring home a D, I, I can't miss out on this, I don't want to make things harder than they are. The, the very act of just shrinking from 12 assignments to we're going to work on four projects across the semester can resolve so much of the emotional drain. And when kids feel emotionally drained, when adults, when we feel emotionally drained, we know it's harder to work. It's harder to do. Yeah, that's you talk about the cognitive load and what kids are able to process. And, you know, I mean, I know just from my own experience, we went into this pandemic, our income was halved <laughs> because of our situations. And it was like, it, it was really, it, we, we, we got through, but it was really challenging. And we're in that, you know, my, our kids aren't used to experiencing that. And it's, um, and then they did. And then, with homeschool and grades and everything. It's yeah, that makes, that makes a, a lot. lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot for every family and every family is different. Um, but it's a lot. 
Yeah. So um, I want to talk, I want to shift gears a little bit because I really want to dive into this with you. I think it, 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 it really was enlightening. Um, so you talk about these, about our kids now, and um, most, most teachers are familiar with the term digital natives. And we know that those are the, the kids that are, didn't grow up quite like me. I think you and I may be on the, the cusp, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I had an Atari. Um, but these kids, you know, these digital natives grew up with, with a technology in their hand. They're not afraid to break it. They've got all of these different things. And there's so many fun jokes about juxtaposing the, the generations. Um, but you talk about disruption natives. And I'd love for you to share what that means. Yeah, um, it's really interesting, Toy, because now that the book has been out for about a month at the time that we're recording this, so many folks have grabbed on to this term disruption natives, and I really would love to see it become this place of discussion because I actually think it changes everything about how we understand what's now being called like Generation Z or like COVID kids. You know, unfortunately, this pandemic is going to be a huge definer for their life and what it means. So the first part of the book talks about um, the, the first sort of the book is cut in thirds. And so the first two chapters are who are these kids and how are they changing? And what is this world and how is it changing? And this idea of disruption natives for me was the confluence of both. How is the world actually changing these kids? And so the example that was the most profound change for me as an educator, as I was researching the book, was I had this moment where I was thinking about graduates right now and what it means to be graduating in COVID. And then I realized that with the K-12 number of years, that meant that they had started in the Great Recession. They started kindergarten in the Great Recession. They're graduating in COVID. And I was sharing that insight. I had just figured it out. Now, other people have figured it out, but I had just figured it out. And I told a colleague and he goes, oh yeah, that's my daughter. She was born right after 9-11. And it just struck me that these young people, their entire lives are bookended by the most defining crises of our lives as adults, but they didn't pick up until our late teens on. And, and what that means for how they experience and view life and what they want or don't want. So to make this very practical, um, and I want to recognize that so many of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be able to think of their own kids or the kids that they're teaching and working with every day. So what we know from the research that is emerging is all the digital native stuff is true, but because this is a group raised in crisis, they also are very, and I'm so curious to have you weigh in on this, like very creative and entrepreneurial in their mindsets, but they don't want to start something new. They want a sure thing. They want security and stability. 
And what's heartbreaking about that for me as a mom is that actually when we look out into the future, it is like the thing least promised to them. The world is changing. It's changing rapidly. We cannot promise stability and security economically. We're going to have to do it socially and relationally in the absence of being able to do it from like a job perspective or money perspective. Um, And And also the experience of these unprecedented things, whether it's a pandemic or a big time natural disaster and having to move because of it or losing your home because of it, the thinking that it will happen again because these events are happening more often, um, the racial uprisings, the feelings of violence or danger, all of these pieces sit on the risk side And then there's accelerated change on the opportunity side, like technology advances that sort of flow into the digital native piece. But what it means is they, like what we feel as grownups, the overwhelm, the change, the the rapid can't quite keep up, that that actually is all that they've known. And that that the brain develops based on experience and environment. And so they're being wired for this ever-changing, ever-evolving environment. Yeah, it, that really resonated with, with me as well. And you talk about them being raised in recessions, which is, that was really powerful because what we see, um, you know, we know as entrepreneurship educators and advocates of entrepreneurship, and, you know, we know what entrepreneurship can do to a school culture. And we know that it's the driving force of our economy and small businesses. And we want to encourage that. And we want to encourage those really great entrepreneurial mindsets. And a lot of those are actually weave in really well to your universal competencies, which is kind of, kind of cool. But what we are seeing is that we've got this group of kids, the seniors and that kind of age bubble that are probably the best poised to be entrepreneurs, they're used to change, they're used to perseverance that, you know, this is their MO and they are the least likely group right now to want to take that risk. And it makes perfect sense. Like I got chills reading that, I'm getting them now. Cause it was like, oh, that's why. Because <laughs> We're seeing it like, and in my research and things like I'm seeing that and like, that's really strange. Why are they, you know, why is that group kind of, um, as a whole kind of more risk. Oh yeah. I mean, I'll give you a great example. One of my best friends in town, Kara, she owns a boutique and her husband runs a radon business here in town and they grew up here and they've got three boys. And you have to imagine between both parents that these kids have inherited that knack for for running a business and they're seeing it and it's around them and they're surrounded by a group of people who are trying to make it as small business owners. And they have watched the stress and struggle of what that has meant in the last year and a half for their parents who have done exceptionally well in an exceptionally difficult time. And so the question would be, as the boys get older, they may be primed to be business owners and small business owners. And will they wanna take on that stress and struggle? And so how do you recognize that and nurture these entrepreneurial qualities? Because 
actually in a time when the world of work is changing so rapidly, they're going to need that more than ever. They're going to be constantly, you know, they are themselves as individuals kind of bringing their own business of here, here I am. And I am my own little business coming in with what I can do and what I can offer. And I'm not going to stay the company forever. And they have, in spite of how phenomenal their parents have done, they're going to carry those memories with them of the sort of fact that it was tough to run a business in this time. And is that the life that they want? Yeah, I had the good fortune of being in a classroom last week, which was so crazy. (laughs) And and talking to kids about entrepreneurship. um, And it was funny that I do like a little survey at the beginning and this one sweet, sweet gal, she just, <laughs> she goes, oh, heck no, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. And I said, why? And it turns out she had the, like the coolest idea in the classroom of, of an entrepreneurial idea when we went through this whole process. But I was like, why? She's like, oh, that's too hard. It's too complicated. It's, you know, I don't, it, but it was interesting because she just wanted to have this, go to school, have the safe job. and. But, you know, that's not the reality, though, anymore, either. Yeah. And I think when we think about entrepreneurship education, I mean, one of the things that you probably also picked up on in the book is that my recommendation that we move how we think about work from like blue collar, white collar to durable or or not durable in this evolving future. And entrepreneurship is actually a very durable career because it's not predictable and patterned. There's nothing predictable about what it takes to start up, uh, you know, having been a founder myself and like the myriad of challenges and issues that come up and, and growth. And so there's probably just a need to recalibrate that every kid actually more than ever needs to be entrepreneurial and needs those skills and knowledge really honed in and that it really is around what is their craft and what are their ideas exactly what you're doing in the classrooms right and then what are the mechanisms for getting those out into the world and then I think just naming naming the struggle naming the reality of what they have seen in their lives yeah we know that those you know, those mindsets, the the perseverance, the not being afraid to take some risks, even if they're calculated risks, we don't say jump off a cliff. We say, you know, get your gear out and slowly work your way down. <laughs> right. But it's, it's those, those mindsets, you know, recognizing opportunities, especially as we're shifting. I couldn't in five years from now, like there, there's jobs I can't, I, I don't even know what the vocabulary word is for them because there isn't one yet. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's just getting them comfortable with all of those mindsets, regardless of whether they're officially working for themselves or if they're working for somebody else or if they're partners in something and they're, you know, but they're helping to grow that business and to be successful and to make, create some stability. Um, I really liked the part where you talked about tomorrow's world and what that means for young people now. And you discussed three forces that are shaping the world. And these are for, to, so that so these young people can thrive and those are machines, momentum and markets. Can you describe what those are and what that means? 
Yeah. So I show myself in two uh, places in the book as a former fifth grade teacher because I alliterate a lot. I, I always look for opportunities to alliterate. So you've got these three M's, um, what you said, machines, momentum, and market. And these are really again, the book was written for folks who are raising and working with kids. And so I wanted to take the opportunity to take all of the research that I've gotten from workforce, economy, uh, society work and bring it back in. So this is kind of a, a tour de force grounding on what's being said about the role of technology, the role of acceleration and the impact on economic opportunity. And then like what the heck that means for our kids. So machines are just the role of technology that we're experiencing, that our kids are experiencing. As you've already mentioned, Toy, any of our kids who were born after 2007, so to give context here, my son is 10, he was born in 2010. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're talking about really tween down, any of those young people were, were born after smart technologies were invented. So they actually truly literally don't know a world without tech. These are the babies who were announced on Facebook. So their digital footprint starts before they were born. And what we know is there's this man-machine relationship or this tech-touch relationship that we won't be able to extricate our kids from and that we saw really intensely in the last year and a half. What that means is being digitally connected is not um, sort of an accessory or a commodity, it's a necessity, it's, it's a utility. And we have to make sure that every kid has that ability to be connected. From a work perspective, young people need to grow up understanding that they will be working on tech, they will be working with tech, and in some cases, they might even work for tech, which is wild. So this chapter where I talk about machines, I go full in. I give everything from Here's a story of an amazing doctor at a children's hospital who is an incredible human and also uses the best tech that she can, everything from big data of what do I need to know to diagnose this kid and can technology run all of the studies for me and help me crunch the data to putting on big goggles and actually projecting a hologram of little kids' hearts and practicing procedures before she goes into the surgical room. But I also go over to nurse bots in Japan, which are robots that look like humans who go in with elderly folks who need to be reminded to take their medication and to drink water and to eat food and who need a level of social engagement Japan does not have as many children as us. The family size is smaller and there aren't, uh, there are a lot of lonely elderly people 
And so that's an example of home healthcare aides who are robots. So the robots actually are coming for some of the jobs, not all of them. But I just wanted to paint that picture so that folks understood the, the wide roles that tech play and the kinds of relationships we need. Momentum is really what we've been talking about already. It's the speed of change. It is that things are changing faster than they ever have. It's accelerated. And what that means is, especially from an entrepreneurship perspective, that a solution to a problem might be outdated by the time it goes to market. And so actually, how do you build for the anticipation of change and evolution and constantly needing to update and upgrade what you know and can do but also any products or ideas that you bring to market. And then the market section, the most important thing I think for educators and listeners to hear is that based on all of that, all of the changes in the world, the speed of change, the role of technology, that the higher education and the work market are both evolving in a pretty tremendous way, that there are hundreds of thousands of post-secondary credentials um, and this chance, what you mentioned just a moment ago, Toy, like there are going to be jobs on the market in five years that we can't even imagine right now. So this newness factor. And so um, I would say there are two pieces that come out of that section that are were important for me as a mom and educator. One is the possibility that because of advances in science and society, our kids could live a really long life. If they have resources and supports, they could live to be 100 as the rule and not the exception. Now, life expectancy goes down depending on quality of living circumstances. But this prospect of a 100-year life means we could be preparing our students and our kids for an 80-year working life. So we need to grapple with, oh my God, what that means. And then the second is that this sort of way that we do school is really outdated of like graduate high school, go to college one time, train for a career, then get jobs that progress and promotions in that career field, being a lawyer, being an accountant, being a, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, Which is good for entrepreneurial education because the reality is that the way it's going to work and is already working is you kind of go into this opportunity marketplace And you have to buy learning and training or a work opportunity. And uh, kids could have eight, 10 careers over the course of their working life. Yeah, that's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about when like my kids are similar in age to yours and it's just sort of like, I, you know, I, the best I can do is what I know. And that's to give them, try to build these mindsets up in them and get them prepared for whatever it is, because we don't know, you know? Yeah. And I'll say, okay, like a little mom hack. So the ways in which I've changed my parenting based on this, I ask my kids, um, what are the issues and ideas that really excite you? Because going after an issue can take a number of different or an idea, right, can take enough, like, what problem do you want to solve? What problems do you want to solve? And so I think it's, you know, we have to shift 
as people who work with kids and live with kids from what do you want to be with when you grow up to what do you want to solve as an adult? What issues do you want to take on as an adult? What ideas do you have for making life easier or better for people when you grow up? Yeah, that's, that's so important now. And I mean, I have a hard time. I have blessed, very blessed to have two boys that were kind of ahead of the curve going into this whole mess <laughs> academically. And so I'm not sure where they are, where they stand right now. Um, but one thing that, that came out of this was that I learned a whole lot more about that, about my own children and what mm-hmm. they're, what they really care about. And uh, unfortunately school wasn't one of them, <laughs> but, but, you know, some of the things that we were able to talk about and dissect and, and because of a little bit of time that, that quarantine gave us, um, it's, it's really important. And the kids that I've had some time to be with last week and, and then in virtually in different ways through my work, um, that's, that's a big deal. We see kids a lot more, I didn't realize it going into a lot of this entrepreneurship stuff that I, I was pleasantly surprised to talk to, you know, 14 and 15 year olds that their big entrepreneurial idea is very much social enterprise. It's very much clean water, climate change. It's, you know, politics, it's camp. It's just all of these really wonderful ideas. And we have talked to some of some of the educators in Hawaii too, that, I mean, some of the things that I'm just, thinking of one teacher that her middle school kids are making prosthetics for people that are actually using them. Like it's not just a modeling or demonstration. They're actually building these for people. And like, and, and so many other stories like that where, I mean, kids are doing things that I, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 14, I just want to make a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think that that is the thing we need to recognize is empathy and motivation comes out of struggle often seeing and experiencing. And so while today's kids may be reluctant because they want stability and security and may be anxious because life has shown them it is worth being anxious or worrying about they're also incredibly primed to solve the most complex issues that we have and emotionally motivated to do it because of what they've seen and experienced themselves. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, that's probably because they were raised in recessions, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, Stephanie, um, I want to wrap up here because we kind of have a drive time, a chunk of time that we like to stay inside of. But please, 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 I want to continue this conversation. So please, I hope you will come back and join us for a second episode. Yeah, I would love that. I think it would be so fun to dig into the currencies and what currency building strategies mean for entrepreneurship education. So let's do it. I love it. Well, everyone, I just... And we're so grateful to have Stephanie with us today. And I appreciate all of you and look forward to the the next episode, Stephanie part two. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Toy. Thanks so much, Stephanie. And you have yourself a wonderful, wonderful afternoon.